Hello, and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John, and we're going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We're down to number 17 on the countdown. Which means that on this episode, we'll be discussing Elmer Bernstein's score to the 1962 film version of the beloved novel To Kill a Mockingbird. And stay tuned after our discussion for a special extra treat. We were lucky enough to get to talk with Elmer's daughter, Emily Bernstein, who worked alongside her father as an orchestrator for many years. She was kind enough to share with us some of her memories of her father and her father's music. To Kill a Mockingbird was written for the screen by Horton Foote, based on the novel by Harper Lee. It was produced by Alan J. Pakula and directed by Robert Mulligan. John, for our listeners who somehow managed to make it through high school without being assigned To Kill a Mockingbird, give us a sense of what it's about. Well, it's a coming-of-age story of a sort. It's based on Harper Lee's own experiences growing up in Alabama in the 1930s. The movie is a black-and-white drama about racism, injustice, and empathy, all as seen through the eyes of a child. It stars Gregory Peck as the upstanding lawyer Atticus Finch, and introduces Mary Badham as his daughter Scout, and Philip Alford as his son Jem. It also includes the feature film debut of Robert Duvall as their mysterious shut-in neighbor, Boo Radley. The story is narrated by an adult scout reminiscing on formative experiences from her childhood, chief among them a court case in which her father Atticus Finch defended a falsely accused man against the forces of racial prejudice. Good enough? Good enough. All right, so John, did you tear up at all while you watched the movie? Yeah, sure I did. You did, didn't you? Yeah, it's a heart-wrenching movie. Did it wrench your heart? Uh, it didn't wrench my heart, but I teared up while I was watching. Did it rend your heart? It didn't. It was easy to take, and yet it uh, it gets you. Yeah, it got me, for sure. Do you remember exactly when and where? I, I Probably where you remember, probably in front of your television. Yeah, that's right. But do you remember when? Uh, like yesterday, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's that. <laughs> I don't remember specifically. Probably when, when Gregory Peck learns that Tom Robinson has died and has to tell the kids. And then when he has to go and tell his family, that got me. And then the ending with, uh, with Boo Radley. Yeah. And can you put into words what you were gotten by there? I know I was tearing up and I am not entirely sure why and i think that's great but if you know why then i'll take it from you uh i don't know exactly why i mean i think it's a very very moving story you know this movie the book and the movie are about presenting i think crucially a child's eye view of the world a child's perspective at coming to terms with some very difficult and very upsetting things about the world and after watching all of these very hard doings through their eyes, it was somehow ineffably wondrous to experience, you know, a warm feeling of companionship or even love and a feeling that there was a benevolent force in the world that you could experience as a child to counterbalance all of these malevolent forces that they were forced to confront. Eh? Yeah, I'll take that. Because it seems like, 
And I'm sure you can find people saying that the story is about the loss of innocence or the end of innocence. Mm -hmm. And yet the place it ends up is kind of an endorsement of the goodness of that child's eye view and the value of it. The trajectory hasn't been about, you know, leaving childish things behind, but kind of recognizing how they can connect you to the world, maybe connect you to things that the children are afraid of. And then growing up means seeing their neighbor for who he is. But I also found it moving just because it isn't really clear who he is. I don't remember the book specifically, but I don't think you get too much more information about what exactly has gone on in Boo Radley's life. It's all very vague. And he doesn't speak. Famously, this is Robert Duvall's film debut, and uh, he has no speaking lines. Right. Something is strange about him in the eyes of society, and the child shows this compassion for whatever the strangeness is. The movie never says, well, we need to show our, you know, mentally handicapped people compassion, or we need to show criminals compassion or shut-ins, or I just don't know exactly what Boo Radley is, but whatever he is, he receives this compassion. Yeah, it's a pure emotion. You know, it kind of lives in an emotional space that is separate from rational thought, which, again, I think is intentionally a childlike way of understanding the world. Oh, there he is, Mr. Tate. I can tell you his name. And, you know, speaking of things that live in a pure emotional space that isn't exactly connected to rational, articulated thought, it's impossible to separate that from the wonderful music that is conveying that emotion. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, Boo. Miss Jean Louise, Mr. Arthur Radley. I believe he already knows you. Let's go out on the front porch. And certainly I was moved at that moment because the film is very well made and the performances are very good. It's attractively photographed and all that, but there's this music infusing it all with feeling. Mm -hmm. I guess what was moving to me is just seeing this character being the recipient of the generosity of that music. This feeling exists and it is offered to everyone on screen, including Boo Radley, outcast, disturbed person, damaged person. He can receive this music too. I think certainly part of Harper Lee's decision to approach this story from the child's point of view was to invoke a child's absolute sense of right and wrong that hasn't been tainted by society. You know, they haven't been carefully taught to hate yet. And just the idea that, well, of course, this awful racist injustice strikes the children as objectively wrong. And so I think very much 
the film is endorsing that child's sense of morality. The hope that people find in this story, and they keep going back and keep assigning this book to kids, is, I think, the idea that there's decency and love inside all of us, and that we are allowed to want that in American society and in adult life. And very often in storytelling and in movies, and in fact in movie music, there will be this kind of precious idea that the child's world is wondrous and glimmering with sparkles and this beautiful garden of fairies that we all, you know, Christopher Robin has to outgrow his toys and go off into the real world. This stark dichotomy essentially between, oh, we all wish we could be children forever, but this is how things really are. And the music here, the story, but crucially the music, never reduces the children's world to kitsch. Mm -hmm. And so it's allowed to survive in the end and be a statement about reality, actual right and wrong, actual justice, actual human compassion. You know, the final gesture of the movie is Scout saying, I think the last lines are something about her father would be there in the morning, you know, tucking in the child. I thought it was that the father was at Jem's bedside as he was uh, recuperating. Yeah, that's right. He sat with Jem with the broken arm all night. Yeah. He would be in Jem's room all night. And he would be there when Jem waked up in the morning. It's this evocation of bedtime stories like Goodnight Moon, this kind of feeling of you're safe, the world is love, all is well, but that that has been achieved in the moment when you kind of thought they were going to say, and then we all had to grow up and face hard facts, sort of says... The world in which we live is this loving one. Yeah, I think an enormous strength of Elmer Bernstein's writing throughout his long and varied career is his ability to discern the perspective, the important perspective from which to tell the story and to commit to that perspective completely and sincerely. Here I've got a quote from an interview that Bernstein did in 2002 when he was reminiscing back about scoring To Kill a Mockingbird. He says, For To Kill a Mockingbird, I had six weeks before I wrote a note of any kind. I didn't know what to do. I sat there like a dummy for six weeks and just couldn't get into it. I couldn't figure out what the film was about in a way that was an open door to walk through. Certain things were obvious. It was about racism, the Depression, the South. But the minute you say it's about the South, you get tied up with geography. Do you want banjos and the blues? I didn't want to get involved in geography. The question becomes what to get involved in, how to get into these issues. But then I realized that the film was about these issues, but seen through the eyes of children. That was the clue. Once I got that, that led to the tentative one-finger piano thing that children do when they are trying to pick out a tune. It gave me the bells and musical box effects and harps. So... It's so valuable to note this process that Bernstein went through. How do I get into this? What am I contributing? What is the music contributing to this story? Yeah, music is a point of view. And I think that he was able to score such diverse movies, like truly diverse yeah. movies, because he didn't take point of view for granted. I think he, Elmer Bernstein, was sensitive to the idea that the point of view espoused by the music becomes the point of view of the entire artistic mm -hmm. endeavor point of view of the audience, the point of view of the movie itself. And so choosing the children's point of view on the story wasn't just kind of choosing who the most sympathetic characters are, the children. It was choosing the meaning of everything in it. Yeah. 
And, you know, you mentioned the longevity and the enormous variation in the stuff that he scored. It's kind of staggering to think about. Just two years before this movie, he wrote the score that maybe he's best known for, and that is one we're going to talk about later on on this list, is The Magnificent Seven, the archetypical Western score. And between that movie and this movie is an enormous difference already, and they were just two years apart. But then decades later in his career, Elmer Bernstein had a period in which he scored goofy Saturday Night Live actor comedies. He scored Animal House and Airplane and Ghostbusters and Stripes, all of these famous 80s comedies. And I think I remember hearing either it was Bernstein talking about it or the director of Animal House, John Landis, talking about it. The great inspiration that the two of them had together for the approach to the score of Animal House was to score it deadly serious. So when John Belushi is sneaking around and he's doing some like, you know, spy kind of sneaking business. And it's scored like a real spy action movie. The music is totally on board with the silly activity as though it is not silly. And I, maybe Airplane is the best example of this. You know, the whole tone of Airplane is this deadpan. The actors aren't going to acknowledge at all the silliness of the things that they're saying. And the score is totally playing the same game. It is scoring it completely seriously. The main theme is very tense and kind of important sounding. And it's also got a soaring romantic Hollywood love theme. And I think that was his great inspiration, Bernstein, in scoring all these comedies, was that he was going to take them seriously. He was going to pretend he wasn't scoring a comedy. He was going to give credit to what the characters in the movie thought that they were doing. And from that would come the humor. And again, I think it's the same skill, the same strength that he has of choosing a perspective. So I wanted to take a look at how that perspective is established in To Kill a Mockingbird by looking at the very first cue, apart from the main title, the very first underscore cue, mm -hmm. which is when Jem and Scout see Mr. Radley walking by. And so Jem goes on to tell Dill, their new neighbor for the summer, about the Radley family and about Boo Radley and all about this spooky house down the street. As soon as Jem starts to try and cast a spell over Dill, the music is in there with him. Right. He says I can invite anybody. There goes the meanest man that ever took a breath of life. Why is he the meanest man? And I thought that that entrance right there is so crucial to how we experience the whole rest of the thing because it, just by arriving there, we get tuned into that kind of... Charlie Brown space where the adults are just kind of trombone noises off in the distance and you never see their faces. Only children see, exist here. Night. Yeah. Boo only comes out at night. When you're asleep in it's pitch dark. When you wake up at night, you can hear him. Once I heard him scratching on our screen door, but he was gone by the time Atticus got there. The child's emotional world in which dramas play out is the one that they discover without direct adult guidance or intervention or even supervision and so as soon as these children are truly unsupervised here comes their fantasies their imaginations and what i love about this cue 
is this moment in the middle when he's like, come on over here, we'll get a better view. And they run across the lawn and there's this off-kilter little couple of bars of the piano going... See, he lives over there. Which is just them running. And to me, it's so beautifully evocative of the way kids' minds and rhythms actually work. You're deep in a ghost story, and then, okay, for a second, we have to interrupt with this Mm -hmm. physical action, and now we're back in the ghost story again. The intuition on Elmer Bernstein's part to put that quirkiness in there and then duck back out of again felt very true. Within the first 20 seconds of music in this movie, I know where I am emotionally. I remember the part of my life that it corresponds to. I remember the part of my emotional space that is going to be engaged. Yeah, it struck me as being kind of flighty in the tone that it was striking. It was kind of jumping from idea to idea quickly in terms of the texture. Yeah, there was that piano, and then there's some funny little winds and some funny little strings. Wonder what he looks like. Well, judging from his tracks, he's about six and a half feet tall. And it kind of goes from one little idea to the next very quickly and with both feet. There's a long, jagged scar that runs all the way across his face. As these little kids are spinning out this ghost story that they're telling each other. And didn't that feel to you like trying to follow a kid's train of thought? Yeah, absolutely. It gave me that right away. Dale, what are you doing here? My lord, Stephanie almost gave me a heart attack. And then as soon as Dill's aunt shows up and sort of interrupts the unsupervised world, the music goes away because now we're on adult time. Yep. And then a few scenes later, we see these three kids, Scout and Jem and their new friend Dill, playing in the street. And Scout takes a ride in the inside of a big tire. This very idyllic scene of children playing. And it gets this music that is like high adventure. It's again, Bernstein is taking what they're doing very seriously and is playing the sense of, we are imagining great big adventurous things that we are playing, but it's real. Yeah, or there's a moment later that's really striking when Jem has found the spelling metal in the knot hole. Mm-hmm. He finds stuff that Boo Radley secretly is leaving for him there. And it's been sort of a spooky scene. It's the middle of the night, and he finds this thing, and it's sort of equivocal. Is he scared being out there, or is there something wondrous about discovering this treasure in the tree? And then he gets sort of spooked and runs full force back to the house. And there's this, yeah, like uh, Copeland Rodeo giddy-up music as he runs back to the house. I mean, it could not be a bolder choice on Elmer Bernstein's part. It's just a kid running down the street at night. Yeah, it conveys that he's experiencing it as a big adventure. Uh, Speaking of which, uh, you know that one little part where Scout is getting into the tire? Am I imagining things, or do you think it's possible that he actually does a little quote of Magnificent Seven of his own score from two years prior? Well, 
here's what I think about this. I was like, when we talk about this movie, I have to talk about Aaron Copeland's score to The Red Pony in 1948. Oh. I hear all of these references to it. And then I thought, eh, let's save that for the Magnificent Seven episode. Because, yeah, the whole language of this is Elmer Bernstein's language that he derived in part from Copeland. I think it's more sophisticated than just borrowing elements. Like we said way back in the How the West Was One episode, Aaron Copeland invented all of this sound of Americana. We hear a lot of those sounds here, but without the reference that they usually have. Right. It doesn't mean the West. No, it means the sense of rollicking adventure that the kids are accessing. They're not actually playing cowboys and Indians, but sort of giving that sense that it's kids doing such things as playing cowboys and Indians. Just thought it was sort of explicitly nodded at. Again, maybe I'm reading into it, but you got to admit those chords there, those are exactly the Magnificent Seven chords. Yeah, they may be, and the rhythms may be as well. Aaron Copeland got to a lot of them first. Sure. But you're right that Elmer Bernstein developed his own relationship to them in a score that we will talk about a few episodes down the line. And here we are two years later. And yes, I don't know if it's a reference in the sense of a wink. I'm not sure that... Uh, well, it's in there anyway. It's in there. I mean, you can hear these stylistic connections for sure. But yeah, I think it's neat that this American in quotes, music, has become just American music. Like, this is the emotional lives of people living in America. As he said in that quote that you read earlier, he could have done stuff that signified the South, that we all know means the South, in quotes, as a signal. Banjos and whatnot. Banjos and blues and whatnot. But instead he picks this language that, in another setting, might mean, quote-unquote, the West, and here doesn't. It is really being used for its musical effect. Uh, here's something that Bernstein wrote at one point. An insidious thing that happens to the film composer is that in this medium where so very much music is created each year, original thoughts become cliches through repetition almost overnight. One of the sad things that happens is that certain elements of music become so familiar to the audience that they become a form of intellectual communication and thereby lose their value as emotional communications. The easiest example to deal with is what all of us clearly recognize as villain music. The minute a musical device becomes so well-known that it telegraphs information to the viewer, it has lost its ability to work subliminally where it could do the most good. In a sense, the film composer must be one of the most original and inventive of creative artists to be effective over a long period of time. I guess I see that as relevant because there are things in this score that could function as signals. Yeah, if they were actually riding a bucking bronco or something when we heard that music, there would be a sense of... Yup, this is what the horns are doing because they have to. But when you see kids riding in a tire to this music, you really connect and experience what is emotionally encoded in that music. Yeah, you make a new connection to it. You make a transcendent connection between what you're seeing and what you're hearing. It That's the, uh, the magic of it that I'm after here. A little bit later on, they decide to go on this kind of undercover caper at night to sneak into Boo Radley's yard. Mm -hmm. And another example of the music conveying this one-step-at-a-time childlike thought process 
was they they come up to a squeaky gate that they're trying to get through. Jem, the older brother, says, well, spit on the hinge spit on me. to lubricate it so it doesn't squeak. The music stops here. <laughs> All right. The music says, okay, well, let's just pause while they take this practical step. Jim. They have to take a couple of turns at it. Spit some more. And then they manage to do that, and the gate doesn't squeak, and they go through, and then the music starts up again. It's just like, okay, now we can go again. Now we can keep going along on our adventure here. You know, actually, at the end of this sequence, it kind of turns a little bit more serious because Jem gets his pants caught under the fence, and old man Radley actually winds up shooting a gun after what he thinks is a prowler. And there's no music for this part when Scout is anxiously waiting for Jem to come back with his pants and she's counting to 10. There's no music for that count. There's no music for the gunshot or when Jem shows back up. 11, 12, 13, 14. Because I think, you know, the game is over. The childlike adventure that they set for themselves took a turn and they're not experiencing it that way anymore. Yeah, there are distinctly moments where the children are clearly having an intense emotional engagement with something and there isn't music. But I think there is a principle that explains most of those cases. I mean, it seems to me that those were usually cases where the kids are paying focused attention on the adult world right? when their emotional life basically holds still. Their imagination is not engaged with this because they're trying to see things for what they really are and the music goes quiet it conveys in a sense the power that the adult world has over these kids you know for example the scene when the kids are completely mesmerized in fear and awe by the sight of their father shooting a rabid dog from down the street right this is clearly a moment of intense significance for Gem and Scout, both before and after and during. It doesn't get any music, I think, because it is them just watching. What is my father going to do? Right. What is going on in his life? Uh, and they become sort of the way children do, mute observers just kind of holding still. Yeah, there easily could have been exciting music there, and there's not. But... After he does shoot the dog, then the music does come back in as they're processing what they just saw. Exactly. And it's an echo of the kind of adventure play music that we heard earlier during their escapades. It kind of felt to me like it was playing now their admiration for Atticus, that all of these fun adventures that we're making up for ourselves, well, here's the real thing. He can really shoot a gun. And it's also the adult scene signals that it's over. The curtain comes down on this vital thing going on with the adults, and then the imagination of the child kicks in again. Right. I mean, there's several scenes where Atticus has some fatherly wisdom. That's what people remember about this movie and about Gregory Peck telling the children things. <laughs> they remember. <laughs> yeah. You know, people listening to this show, they're probably like, 
John is the one with the deep voice, and Andy's the one with the adenoidal voice. But I, I can also do a deep voice. I can do. Yeah, Gregory I can do Peck. a voice like this too. <laughs> no, it sounds like me. Anyway, Gregory Peck tells them, you know, Scout, you have to walk in another man's shoes before you can really. And then music comes in after that. Golly, you maybe you should just talk like that the whole time. People would love me. People would think I'm the greatest father. Gregory Peck is an American hero because he talks in a deep voice in this movie. It's very, it is very soothing. It is very soothing to watch this movie. But you know the scene I'm talking about where he's giving her some good life advice that everyone remembers. Mm -hmm. There's not music for that. You just learn a single trick, Scout. You get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. Sir? Till you climb inside of his skin and walk around in it. Then it comes in, as she says, and then I would process what my father said, right. and it would have an effect on me. Is that a bargain? There just didn't seem to be anyone or anything Atticus couldn't explain. Though it wasn't a talent that would arouse the admiration of any of our friends, Gemini had to admit he was very good at that. And this is all to build up to the giant musical gap yes. in the middle of this movie. I was waiting to see if I was going to get to bring it up, but you got the... I'm just saying it. You can talk about I it I know. Now. We're both going to talk about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it. it is in one sense sort of this anomalous gap of 45 minutes or something without music, but on the other sense, it exactly... Well, let's say what it is. It's for, the, it's for the trial, the trial scene. Yes, that's right. The trial of Tom Robinson, who has been falsely accused of raping Bob Ewell's daughter. Right. It's the core of the movie. It's this sort of movie within the movie it's uh if you ask people what the story of to kill a mockingbird is they would talk about this case right and the stirring speeches that gregory peck makes to the jury asking for justice and uh and there are intense emotional performances by pretty much everyone in the scene sure by tom robinson by mayella yule there's a lot of acting. There's a lot I of i really loved those performances both of those ones specifically as witnesses on the witness stand they were really moving to me. And, you know, it kind of made me feel a little better about the awful things that happened in this movie to realize that the actor who played Tom Robinson went on to be an admiral in a couple of Star Trek movies. So that made me feel better about things. <laughs> I'm glad he had that coming too. Yeah. At the end, when he leaves the courtroom and Gregory Peck says, Tom, this is just the first round, you know, don't worry, we're going to come back. And that doesn't work out for Tom Robinson, but it worked out for Brock Peters. Sure. He got to be an admiral. In Star Trek. Anyway, there's all this intense emotional drama going on, and it is intense. It's clearly of intense, intense significance, life significance for Gem and Scout. But that emotional experience that they're having is not given musical accompaniment until the scene is over. And then they process and the music comes back in beautifully, wonderfully. These solo winds. You know, it, those solo winds, for me, harken back to an earlier moment in the score when the kids go with Atticus in the car when he drives over to Tom Robinson's house. And Scout is asleep in the car, but, but Jem is awake. And I guess it must be Tom Robinson's son walks out 
and sort of waves at Jem through the window of the car. These two boys, one black and one white, have this very simple, innocent greeting, and they just wave at each other. And the music is a counterpoint between, I think, what is it, a oboe and a clarinet. There are these two instruments, and they're both equally having things to say. It conveyed to me a sense of equality. The music was just playing simple two boys meeting each other and being friendly with each other. So when we hear these solo wind instruments again at the end of the courtroom scene, it made me think of that moment of just simple, unassuming, friendly equality that is now extraordinarily resonant after we've witnessed what we've just witnessed in the courtroom. Gregory Peck is staidly walking out of the court and all of the black people in the balcony stand up and that man, you know, memorably says to Scout, Miss Jean-Louis, stand up. Your father's passing. It is, in a sense, deeply affecting music because we know that this is the emotional musical response to all of that unscored drama that mm-hmm. we've just seen. Right. All of the screaming and pleading and arguing and, you know, the verdict does not come out properly. He's found guilty, even though he's obviously not guilty because of the because of the completely racist establishment. And this music deals with all of that in such a human, honest, you know, the music does not grandstand and say, mm-hmm. we have this major social problem in this country. It doesn't engage beyond the human level. And these wind instruments is such the right choice, such a beautiful choice, because a wind instrument sounds like a voice. Mm-hmm. Breath. Yeah, it just sounds human. A wind solo or a few wind solos as the answer to a huge societal horror is such a touching, you know, the philosophy of it is right there in sound and in emotion. Again, it's sort of telling the audience, yes, this important thing happened, but the import of the story we were watching isn't necessarily the important thing itself. It's the processing of this important thing. Yeah. The way that it sits with the children and lives in their memory and it informs who perhaps they become, but it's about processing this awful thing rather than just being about the awful thing. Yeah, it's about being a feeling person in a world where such things happen. Mm -hmm. So the feeling of it is the crux of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, As he, again, as he said in that quote, you could write music about injustice per se or about the south per se or you could have scored you use the word grandstanding the music doesn't grandstand well you know you could have scored the literal grandstanding that gregory peck makes in his impassioned closing statements to the jury yeah now gentlemen in this country our courts are the great levelers in our courts all men are created equal. 
And, you know, in these conversations, we're constantly talking, honestly, more than I thought we would when we started this project. We're talking about spotting. We're talking about where the music is and where the music isn't. Mm -hmm. Because the meaning of the music is grounded in that. If you put music of the same musical taste and sensitivity in that place, if you just transferred some of this music into the courtroom scene under his plea to the jury... Now, gentlemen, in this country... Our courts are the great levelers. In our courts, all men are created equal. It would now be scoring an issue. Mm -hmm. It would be scoring a trial instead of scoring what it is to be aware of such things, which is what it, because of its placement. It's not just that the music is musically tasteful it's that it knows what to attach to and what to leave as something for us just to observe to experience so much of this movie is about stuff that the children have to deal with and their dealing with it is the drama so andy let's talk about the main theme we played it at the top of the episode and it's been sort of sprinkled throughout but i think we should uh, just take a moment now to listen to it all the way through So this theme, as Elmer Bernstein said, the first time you hear it is at the very beginning while you're still looking at the Universal logo. I guess he was imagining a child picking out with one finger on the piano. I was actually a little surprised I didn't remember it when I was watching it again. You know, because I've listened to the track on the soundtrack, which continues directly into the next part of the music. In the movie, you hear that single piano line and then no music for a little while. And we just hear a little kid humming. It's kind of a tuneless humming. It doesn't really relate to any melody or anything. And, you know, the presentation of the title itself, we see a child taking a rubbing as though making an impression of a leaf, except that the image that comes up is the title, To Kill a Mockingbird, and there's no music over that, there's just this humming. And then a little bit later on in the credits, as the camera is panning over this assortment of objects taken out of the cigar box, then the music starts. I mean, those titles are so beautifully done. Oh, it's yeah. a wonderful title sequence. All in extreme, extreme close-up, so you feel like your child on the floor mm -hmm. looking at things at really close quarters, and it's a beautiful sort of visual analog to what we're trying to talk about in terms of the music, the child's point of view. It's like a visual child's point of view. They're looking at their marbles and crayons and things in extreme close-up. It's a perfect start to this movie, and... I am really torn about whether they made the right choice to cut out the title bit of the Elmer Bernstein music. What did you think? Oh, there's actually music in that hole that was cut? Yeah, if you play the album version against it, it works out fine. The credits begin with, again, an extreme close-up, this cigar box of childhood treasures, 
that turn out to be the things that Boo Radley has been leaving for the kids in the knothole of the tree, opens up and you see the little dolls and jacks and marbles and things. In the score as Elmer Bernstein originally wrote it, it is accompanied by pretty much exactly the same music that you hear later in the movie when Jem shows his cigar box of treasures to Scout, this kind of magical harps and, as he says, music box kind of sounds. A lovely little theme, actually, which I watched it synced up with the movie, and it, it's lovely. The effect is touching and just perfect music for it. But the sound design that they've done instead of the kid, also recorded close, is a very strong evocation of the same thing, of being alone with your own thoughts as a kid, playing with your crayons. I kind of get why the director, whoever made the decision, I kind of get why they were so tempted to do that. But I miss the music being continuous. I missed it a little too. I think I agree with you. So learning that the music actually had been composed continuously to run underneath the length of the whole credits suggests that what I was about to observe was indeed intentional, which was that the moment when the theme really opens up and the brass start to come in, and it's just this gorgeous, gorgeous big statement of the theme, where does that moment fall in the credits? It falls on the title card for the children, for the children actors, it says, and introducing Mary Badham as Scout and Philip Alford as Jem. And I, you know, I don't think that's a coincidence at all. I think he was telegraphing here. This is what the story is about, these two children. So when they appear in the credits, that's when we get the most full-bodied and glorious statement of the melody. So this melody is a lot of different things at once. It sounds simple, but there's kind of some sophisticated compositional choices going on here. Which is always the most impressive thing to me, when somebody is able to make something sound like it is simple, when it's really not. You know, it's just so difficult. (laughs) making things uh, sound easy is the most difficult. Yeah. The tune sounds like, first of all, yes, something a child might be making up as they hum or play on the piano. And second, something that a child might have learned, like an old folk song, some, you know, kindergarten sing-along tune. But if you try and sing along with it, you'll find it's difficult because the the phrase lengths and the where the gaps in the scale are, and it is not nearly as easy to hum as it sounds because it is subtle. It has some subtlety to it. It's a beautiful tune. I think a particular defining quality about it is that it is playing along a specific scale, which is not the ordinary major scale. So, you know, if you're going to make a scale using seven notes out of the 12 possible notes that are in an octave, then there are many different ways that you can order the whole steps and half steps to span the octave. And those different orders are called different modes. So the particular mode that this melody is moving around is called the Lydian mode, and that's marked by having the fourth step of the scale be 
raised relative to the major scale. It's basically the scale you would get if you played all the white notes on a piano between F and F. As opposed to between C and C, which I think even people who don't play the piano know, if you're playing on a piano, you start on the C if you're going to play heart and soul or whatever. So if you started on the F, the notes fall in a slightly different pattern. And when you get to the fourth one, it would sound different. Right. When you get to the fourth one, it would sound different. In this case, starting on F, it would be a B. If it was a regular major scale and not a Lydian scale, that would be B flat. That would be one half step lower. So that raised fourth degree winds up being incredibly evocative, and it has a long history of being used to connote, you know, a childlike sense of either magic or wonder or mystery. And it has this very particular resonance that is used all the time. You can point to a lot of great memorable melodies in film music, and you'll find that they have that same Lydian fourth. Uh, can you think of any, Andy? Uh, sure. But before I even think of melodies, sometimes they'll just play a run on a harp. Where you hear a Lydian scale and like, oh, I know where we are. We're in magic. Yeah. It doesn't even need to be a tune. Yeah, there's all kinds of tunes that signify that they are special and joyous and Christmassy because the fourth degree but is higher. Not quite joyous. I think wondrous. Yeah, you're right. Because the feeling when you get there is that something... I mean, these metaphors for why things feel the way they do are all a little suspect. But for me, there's something that feels true about it. You think you're going to hear it. And you hear it. And it's like, ooh, there's a little bit more than I expected. Yeah. It's like a little added sugar rush. I don't know how to put it exactly. But the fact that it's higher has to do with what it is emotionally to me. It's like things have this lift underneath them that you're used to it not being there, but now it is. Yeah, it is. I, no, I think that's right. I buy that. So here, I think it'll be fun to just name a couple of examples of that. Yeah, go ahead. And People can hear the similarity. So here's a score that's coming up pretty soon. Yeah, it's John Williams' score for E.T. That Lydian fourth there is, you know, super important to what E.T. sounds like. Okay, but save some of the goods. Yes, everyone agrees, but let's save it. Okay, yeah, we're going to have to talk about that score soon. You hear that same note in Yoda's theme from The Empire Strikes Back to continue with Williams' ones. It's also an important functional note in the main theme to Back to the Future. Sure. I mean, it's, you know, you get taught it's the Maria note. I, boy, I talk about West Side Story a lot on this. Cut that. I'm not going to talk about No, that. it's fine. It's the Maria note. Sure. You talk about West Side Story the correct amount, I think. I think everybody says so. It's a big deal. It's a good show. Yeah. Um, so, indeed, it is true. You'll notice each of those themes is about the emotion, essentially, of wonder. Yeah. And that is what is being conveyed in the theme from To Kill a Mockingbird, too. If you want to listen for it, the raised note, the special note, is the fourth note of the melody. Now, John, I always feel like this is a weak spot for me. I don't want to claim to know Chains of Influence too well because I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of things. 
I wish I knew more, and I kind of don't want to get up here on Podcast Mountain and say <laughs> so, but um, it feels like, wow, I don't think that you heard that sound prior to this moment, 1962. Or at least, I don't think that kind of Lydian magical innocence was as basic an element of Hollywood as it became after this. But then if someone's like, yeah, its first appearance was in 1954, I'd be like, oh, I didn't know about that. I don't think I have the grounds. No, it seems unlikely to me that this was the first instance of it, but I don't know. But let's just say it, it was an enormously influential one. I think that's right. On Podcast Mountain is a little-known follow-up to On Golden Pond. Uh, yeah, we're, we're living it. Anyway, this is one of those themes. This is a theme that says that childhood is, what were your words, wondrous? Yeah, wondrous, magical, wide-eyed. Yeah. Optimistic, even. I think that's in there. We hear this melody throughout the movie, often gently coming to, as we say, sort of punctuate scenes that have completed, and now the children are growing and learning and processing. The word we keep using. Atticus says something nice to them, and then we hear this theme. It is their childhoods. But it's just gentle. At the end of the movie, Jem and Scout go by themselves to a Halloween pageant where Scout is wearing this big ham costume for some kind (laughs) of... uh, It's a great detail. It's a great costume. It's a papier-mâché ham. It looks like a mercury capsule. (laughs) Yeah, lopsided. And they're walking back home on Halloween through this path through some woods. And they get accosted and attacked by the drunken Bob Ewell, the guy who... The bad guy of the movie. The bad guy, the unambiguous, obvious, villainous bad guy. He's just there to be a monster so that we can give compassion to everyone else and still have the bad guy function occupied. I mean, I'm sure Bob Ewell has some kind of problems. We could stand in his shoes, but we don't. In this story, we don't. Well, we're, we are exposed to some of his problems. I mean, we hear about Well, he's a he's, drunk. He's an alcoholic. He's a drunk, but I think he's also a farmer experiencing the hardship of the Great Depression. Oh, yeah, that's right. There's a whole economic background to this about all of these farmers are suffering. And yes, it is implied that uh, their bigotry is fueled by their economic need. Boy, let us not go here. Yeah. (laughs) You know how things are. Let's not talk about this stuff. Please. Anyway, the kids are walking back through the woods, and Bob Yule, the villain. Another great performance, I want to say, though. By that guy as a villain? Yeah. Yeah, well, he's he's a creep. Sure. He's hateful, for sure. He apparently has set out to kill the children, or at least injure both of them, and this is when Boo Radley emerges and saves them and ends up killing Bob Yule. I don't need to explain all this. Anyway, the kids are walking toward... A very scary, dangerous encounter with the bad guy that is going to be the climax of the movie. But before that moment arrives, as they're just walking home, we hear the fullest, most swelling version of this theme that we've heard since the main titles. It's this theme that's just been threaded throughout the whole movie, and this is the moment that it rises up and really sweeps through the picture. It is a striking choice because I think that someone less artistically 
courageous, with fewer convictions, would look at this scene unscored and say, well, we're going to play some spooky music because they're all alone and there's a threat coming and we'll just show that it's spooky. And to pick this moment to put all of this emotion here is really striking. And I just thought we should talk a little bit about what that is and what what it does and why he did that. Yeah. Why do you think he did that? Well, I noted that too. And I noted the same thing that it was unusual. And I, I mean, I felt you, you can't not feel moved by that. You can't not feel, as you say, swept along in it. But I was trying to sort of articulate to myself, why is it doing that at this point? Is it to sort of bookend the end of the courtroom section of the movie? That these kids have sort of moved on with their lives from that experience, and this is a representation of their emotional growth from grappling with that. You know, now we see them again after going through this, and they are going through their little kid lives, but it's enriched by having had to deal with this ugliness. Perhaps also there's a sense of, you know, bait and switch, a, a false sense of security for the audience to make it all the more shocking when they're attacked. Uh, do you have any other thoughts about what's that doing there? You know, Scout isn't scared. So whether or not the audience knows that something is coming because of the framing of it, her experience in this moment is some kind of happiness and contentment. And so that's the honest version of it. Yeah. But I think just beyond all of that, the big message of the movie as of this tune is that life is good and the world is full of love and that wonder is real. And there's something very moving to me about its being kind of plopped on this simple, unremarkable, unadventure-like moment, mm -hmm. regardless of what is about to come. And I think that sort of the sense that it is there not to trick you but just because it is true, because these emotions are valid, uh, is very moving to me. And so I would like to believe there's something like that going on there. Yeah, I'll buy that too. I think that's certainly in there. You know, after this big swelling statement, the music does actually kind of segue and fade into a little bit of tension when they start to hear footsteps behind them. But it does this incredible magic trick that it manages to sound kind of idyllic, and apprehensive at the same time. What's the matter? Hush a minute, Scout. Thought I heard something. Uh, come on. Having this kind of childlike music play over this scene of tension having this kind of tense music play over this scene of childhood. It's the vase and the profiles at the same time somehow. That's right. It's all one and the same. Yeah. There's no line being drawn between childhood and adulthood, even mm -hmm. though all of our storytelling instincts tell us that that must be what this movie is about. It's not. That is kind of my favorite thing about this movie. I just want to mention how cool a choice I think the accordion is to fill out this texture. Mm -hmm. Because as Elmer Bernstein said, obvious signifiers for the South would be a banjo, you know, a guitar. And obvious signifiers for childhood, which he uses, you know, like celeste, music box kind of sounds, or, or a harp, or uh, a flute, or something like that. Or even, you know, high register piano. Yes, and he does some of these things. Yeah, for sure. But accordion is 
I deeply admire that as an artistic choice because it is neither in the center of the signaling, like you said, the telegraphing. It isn't a signal that the audience says, yeah, yeah, I know why there's an accordion here. It's because they're in Paris. Therefore, we are hearing an accordion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like Mancini does at the beginning of Pink Panther. Right, where he is absolutely just dishing out signals to the audience. Like, Rome time, like, give me a Rome. And then they give him a Rome. And the audience knows that that's what just happened. He'd called the short order chef of music and got that. And here we're hearing the actual sound of accordion. And even though at the fringes of what accordion means, yeah, a child might pick up an accordion, have a toy accordion, or, you know, children did learn to play the accordion as a domestic instrument. And it does have a lot to do with American folk music, including in the South. But you have to sort of think through it. It's not the obvious choice. Sometimes it sounds like the wind or breathing. I don't know, the timbre of it turns out to be really useful to him. But it's not the kind of thing you can just look in the book of what do I do for this movie? Oh, accordion. He, if he hadn't chosen it, I would never have thought of it. Mm -hmm. And yet it works at all the levels that it needs to work. You know, in 1962, surely this sounded fresh. I, again, I don't want to talk about precedents because I don't know what they are. But even now, when you listen to this score, it has a distinctive sound. And I think that accordion is part of why it kind of is this small band. It's a fairly small ensemble, I think. I mean, it's an orchestra, but it's a small orchestra, right? Yeah, I think I saw it described as a chamber orchestra. And there's a lot of solo textures. We were mentioning the solo winds. There's also a lovely solo cello moment when the sheriff drives up to tell Atticus the bad news. We hear this poignant, lovely cello. I think if you actually tally up how many players he had to have Damn. for the moment where the whole brass section kicks in, it turns out that he does have kind of a full orchestra's worth of people there. But the use of it plays as chamber orchestra scale most of the time. And this element of the accordion, which is not a normal orchestral instrument, it's an inspired last spice to drop in the texture. I think there's just so much to admire about this score. I think we could go on and on pointing out things like that. But I think we should try to, to wrap it up a little bit. Okay, yeah. So let's do the segment that we always do where we continue to compile our own revision to the AFI list. Yeah, which you said was absurd last time, but we're going to do it still anyway. It is absurd. On your ordering, John, where do you rank this? So it's particularly absurd now that, you know, we're in the territory where these things are all great. And, you know, I don't want to be putting down any of them by ranking things above them. So what's at the top of my list right now is Alex North's score for A Streetcar Named Desire, which is terrific, which is wonderful and kind of eye-opening for me to really pay a lot of attention to and think a lot about. I think, though, that I am going to go ahead now and put To Kill a Mockingbird above it on the top. I think that Elmer Bernstein is so skilled at distilling what the movie is about, what it needs to be about, what the audience should be thinking about. You know, in addition to obviously the musical skill and the compositional skill, I think that storytelling sensitivity, you know, and we touched on how he was able to call on that for many different styles of movies throughout his long career. That storytelling sensitivity is, I think, of great skill, and he employed it here beautifully to really serve as guide rails on what the experience of this movie should be. 
to really focus it in on the child's perspective. And on top of that, just intrinsically as music, I think this is just glorious and kind of uh, tear-jerking. Just in and of itself, you, you can't help but be moved, as we've said. So I think it's the marriage of this storytelling instinct with a truly all-time great melody and piece of music that uh, has to put it on the top of my list. Yeah, I am pretty much with you. Streetcar Named Desire is at the top of my list, too. I see them as about on par in terms of what did they do for the movie? Did they do what they needed to do? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to let this one be above it for a couple of possible justifications. One, it is making the movie, I think, more than people are inclined to realize. The emotional experience that you think of as the To Kill a Mockingbird movie experience is the experience of this music and it's not every movie where that's possible, you know, whereas in Streetcar, I said it was so wonderful that Alex North got in there as an equal. As I said, at the end of Streetcar, I felt kind of like I'd been punched in the gut and I knew that the music had been in there. Punching you. Punching me. But here, I think that the responsibility on the music's shoulders is even greater for how much one is moved. The movie is telling this story and showing us these characters. And there was, for me, the strong sensation that the music was giving me their emotions. And I obviously wouldn't have been completely oblivious to what their emotions could be otherwise, but it was coming from the music. Mm-hmm. That's why I felt what I was feeling, I think, to a great degree. Uh, and the alternate one is, you know, this one made me tear up. So I think that's the first on our list. I have to put that at the top. So that's at the top of my list. Here, here. Well, we said at the top of the episode that we had a special extra treat this time, and here it is. We had the good fortune to talk with Emily Bernstein, Elmer's daughter and longtime orchestrator. She was kind enough to tell us some of her memories of her father and her father's work, in particular, his relationship with his score for To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, he loved that movie. It was absolutely one of his most favorite scores that he did. So, well, obviously the movie came out before you were born, but I'm just curious, do you remember the first time that you saw it? I don't remember the first time that I actually saw it. Of course, I was always aware of it. um, And he made me a version of it that I could play at the piano. He did an arrangement for me when I was about, I think, 12 or so. And so I still have that. And it's, it's very precious to me, that arrangement. What prompted him to make that for you? It was a gift. It was a, like a, a birthday gift. And I guess that I had finally reached the piano playing point that he felt that I could do it some justice. So yeah, it was it was really beautiful. Did you play it in a, in a recital or something like that? I believe that I did. And also my daughter has played it in a recital now as oh, well. Wow. So yeah, it kind of lives on, which is really nice. So when he gave you that arrangement, did he tell you anything about what the theme was from and what it meant? I already knew what the theme was from. So I had an understanding of that this was something that was really personal from him that he had made for me. So it already, it meant a lot. So I I don't think I needed a lot of explanation of, of where this was from and what it meant to us as a family. I'm curious, just growing up in that house, how much your father's music was around, how much 
you know, did he introduce it to you specifically or was it just in the air? Or? It was much more just in the air. Yeah. He did not specifically sit down and say, hey, you got to listen to this. So it was something that was around. If he was ever sitting around playing the piano, he was mostly playing classical music, actually. Um, and he would sit and just just work on stuff that he was interested in or, or loved. Um, and all of his creation really went on in his studio. It was more private when he was was creating things. He didn't sort of come out and say, hey, listen to this. But of course, we were aware of what was going on and, and movies that were appropriate for us to see, we were able to see. Although my sister and I were always really bummed that we were not allowed to see Animal House for <laughs> years. <laughs> <laughs> So, I gotta say, I'm also curious. Just what was the music he played around the house? What was his classical likes? Yeah, I was gonna ask that too. Um, he played a lot of of Brahms, that kind of thing. Um, mostly romantic composers. He really loved all that, and so that was what we would hear. Mm -hmm. And then my mother, of course, always had the the classical station on. Um, but when he was working, that used to drive him nuts. So he would come into the kitchen and turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> So that was always a, you know, little edgy point there. <laughs> so you said that he always loved To Kill a Mockingbird, and it was a project of his that he was particularly proud of. Yeah, I, I remember, I think just over the course of my life and, and listening to him in interviews and things that he told us, um, I think what really kind of stuck with me was that, first of all, he was given so much time, especially in uh, modern movie making to come up with theme. And he needed all that time because he really had to sit with it and decide musically what did he want to say, especially in the main title. And so he sat with it for, I think, about six weeks and was able to just kind of sit and think and watch and think. And, and as you guys know, that those kinds of schedules are just don't happen anymore. So and then he finally decided that the best way to go was obviously from the kid's point of view and kind of picking out that really simple kind of one-fingered melody that that was the way that he felt was the best way to proceed. You worked with him for years as orchestrator. Did you ever see him sort of do a condensed version of that same process of trying to arrive at what the point of view was? Or was that not necessarily the order in which he approached things? That was definitely the order in which he approached things. That was not necessarily the part that I was really involved in. Again, I think that that was more between, you know, him and his piano and in the studio. And when I became involved, it was more of the like, okay, here we are. This is what we're doing. And he would start to send me sketches. Um, and he would give me a very brief kind of session on what, kind of thing we were trying to accomplish in this particular movie. He would give me the orchestra and then we would just kind of go from there. But all that stuff he had already worked on and then obviously had discussions with the director too, usually. And do you have a sense of whether he would plan an instrumentation in advance and then write music to match it, or if he'd sort of add things to the ensemble as he needed them? No, he definitely had a very clear idea from the very beginning of mm -hmm. this is what we've got. This is what we're working with. We're like heavy strings or we're very light strings or we're using this instrument as a solo or it wasn't really a like, oh yeah, maybe we should, you know, involve this. It definitely had a, a very much well thought out thing from the very beginning. So he would pick a palette mm -hmm. as sort of part of his initial approach to the film. Absolutely. I'm just curious, how did you get into doing orchestration for him? 
I was obviously really lucky. I studied music in college and studied theory. And, you know, I had gone into college saying, no, I'm not going to be a music major. You know, it's going to be different, separate from my what my dad did. And then when I got <laughs> to college, after about a year of that, I just, I really fell into it. And it obviously, it felt like home to me. And then when I graduated, he was able to say, you know, are you interested in this? Would you like to come and work with me? And of course I said, yeah, I would love to. And so I got to work with his orchestrators at that time, um, mostly Pat Russ at that point, who um, was amazing. And so I got to have that great experience of, of learning by doing. I think the Mockingbird score, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's uh, Shukin and Hayes. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Did you meet those guys? Did you ever know them? I never knew them personally. I always knew their names and, you know, they were so well regarded and highly respected. And yeah, so they were kind of like superstars in, in my mind, for sure. Did you ever look at the old scores and try to emulate specific things from your father's prior work, or you just took your education and, and addressed it to the sketches that were in front of you? I think more that. Yeah. I really, yeah, I, I just went with what was in front of me, and his sketches were always very clear. There was not a lot of, of guessing that had to go on. You know, all the melodies were very, very clear, but he always gave me a lot of free reign. And that was what was a really beautiful part of our being able to work together. As he said to me, you can add in whatever you want and I can take out whatever I want. <laughs> so that was kind of the agreement. So it was great. So I felt like I had freedom to add little flourishes or this and that, um, and then, like I said, and then it was never, obviously, I never had a problem if he said, I don't like that right there. <laughs> so it was a good, it was a really good relationship. Do you remember any specific decisions that you made from his sketches where you felt like you were having a satisfying contribution to it? Uh, yeah, I would say in every score that I worked on with him, there was definitely a few different cues that I felt like that was great. I added those harp glisses uh -huh. or, or, you know, whatever it was. Um, and he would sometimes stop and say, I really like that. Did I do that? Or did you add that? And of course <laughs> that's an amazing moment. Right. And the times that I got to say, I did that were great, you know? So I do, I do from every film, I do have those moments. Do you remember how many lines his sketches were? They tended to be, uh, three or four line sketches. It was very clear. He definitely, you know, he was so good at what he did, especially, you know, by the time I started working for him, he'd been working for so, so long. And he was so amazingly great at what he did and so facile. And he made it look easy, which I think for young people who would come to watch young composers or people like that would come to watch the sessions. And occasionally they'd say, I could never do that. I could never do what you do. And he would look at them and go, well, yeah, get back to me after you've been doing it for 50 years and tell me <laughs> how you feel then, you know? And so it was, um, it was kind of amazing. And his internal clock and the way that he would make changes right on the stand, all those kinds of things were, were really amazing to watch and to get to be a part of. What kind of things would he change on the stand? Um, because often, as you know, by the time they get to the recording, the film is changed. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the score, it wouldn't line up anymore, the cue. And so he would watch the film, stand there. He wouldn't put everybody on a break. You know, they would just all sit. He'd watch and he'd start to cut bars or add bars and just right there. And it was um, 
I think for some directors, it made them feel like, oh, well, this is how it goes. You know, everybody uh-huh. can do this, um, which in some ways is a bad thing. Uh, but obviously for him, it worked out really, really well. And so it was a it was an amazing thing to be able to watch somebody have that kind of internal clock and have that breadth of knowledge that they can actually just on the stand and on the spot quickly use. So one of the things that we talked about in our conversation was the length of his career and how varied all of the different projects were that he worked on. Were you able to tell a difference in his process from when he was doing, you know, a silly comedy or a heavy drama? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, not really. I mean, I, what I really noticed about him was that whatever he was doing had his full passion. It never felt like, oh, this is just silly. So, you know, I'm not going to spend as much time or as much energy or as much effort on it as this other thing. So I always really admired that. And I felt like that was what you really needed to be successful as a composer was no matter what you were working on or, or as anybody in the film business, no matter what it is, you give it your all 100% every single time. Yeah, I think one of the great innovations of his was treating the silly, screwy stuff happening in Animal House, for example, you know, seriously. Oh, absolutely. Well, and and then part of that, too, came from from John Landis himself, mm-hmm. you know, and my dad saying, you know, what, why do you want me? And he said, well, because I want you, I want you to take this and write it as if it's a serious thing. So uh-huh. obviously that was very successful. <laughs> <laughs> that whole approach worked very well. So then did he have a a similar conversation uh, for for Airplane? Yeah, I think what happened, and for him and his career, he would do these things, he would then get a bit pigeonholed, and then he would have to move on to something else. Uh So he never wanted to just do the one thing. So he did, you know, he did the Westerns, and then that kind of got played out for him personally as an artist. I think it wasn't as as interesting as it had been in the beginning and then he did the whole comedy period and then when all he was being offered was comedies he stopped and actually i think there was a full year where he just did not work because he just had to say no to everything um until something new came in which was at that point my left foot and then that started a whole sort of a, a rebirth so he had these great parts of his career and then was able to kind of remake himself Um, And then it all kind of wrapped up, I think, with Far From Heaven, which was the last thing that he did, which was a reminiscent score, of course, to To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, So to return to uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, since you mentioned that, Mm -hmm. when is the last time that you saw it? The last time that I saw it was probably a couple of years ago because both my kids now read it in about the eighth grade and then they watch the movie. So I've, I've watched it. Uh, my son's reading it now and then my daughter watched it. She's a senior now, so she watched it a few years ago. So I watched it at that point. And I'm always amazed by that movie because I feel like it just holds up so well and it always feels current no matter which decade you're watching it in, which is... There's something sad about that, um, <laughs> but there's something kind of amazing about it. And a lot of it, just the performances are so great. I think the music also has a lot to do with it, though. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. Definitely. It definitely ropes you in and pulls you into that that sense of place and time and, and yeah. feeling. Just the emotions are so strongly delivered that, you know, of course, it's immediate at any time you watch it. Do you have a favorite score of his overall? You know, yes. Um, 
obviously that one's really at the top of the list. Sure. Um, I always love in concert, especially when they do Magnificent Seven, because that's always feels so good. It's so familiar. It's so uplifting. Um, I love that. And then as far as what I worked on with him, I'm always really proud of Age of Innocence because I just really loved that music. And it was such a great overall experience to get to work on that. I, I guess I'm curious. I will ask, have you seen all 150 of his scored movies? I have not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are ones that occasionally I look at the titles and go, Wait, what is that? Wow. <laughs> so now I was looking through the filmography. I thought this is an enormous output. I, I'm not sure anyone can have really taken in all of this. No, I don't think even my, like my mom, I don't think has seen all of them necessarily. That's a relief in some ways. <laughs> if you just knew them all by heart, I would, I would be stunned. <laughs> all right. I, I think we're sort of winding down here. Right? What, what are you supposed to say in a podcast? Do you have anything to plug, Emily? No, I uh, don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It's been, it's great. I'm, I'm really happy that you guys are doing this. And it's got to be fun for you guys to get to do this and listen to all these scores and discuss the movies. And I really enjoyed listening to you guys and what you've done. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you for giving us some of your time. We're really grateful that you were game to do this. Yeah, it was a real pleasure talking to you, Emily. Thank you. Aw, thank you. It's absolutely my pleasure. So there it is. That was great. Our thanks again to Emily Bernstein. It was a real pleasure to get to talk to her. And I think that about wraps it up for the episode. And Andy, I just want to say also that I think you have a perfectly lovely sounding voice. I think it's uh, smooth and, and pleasant. Well, I think the same about you, John. Oh, good. I think that one of the great pleasures of listening to this show is listening to the two of us <laughs> do radio voices. <laughs> well, uh, I hope so. <laughs> All right. So let's see how quickly and professionally we can knock out this little outro now, okay? Now, now we're really cooking, right? Cook. Okay. So next episode, we'll be talking about Franz Waxman's score for Sunset Boulevard. Would he say Franz Waxman or Franz Voxman or Franz Waxman? Or well, that is know. something we're going to have to take up next time. You don't want to find out now? Nope. Let's not find out now. Let's have it be a great teaser cliffhanger, how to pronounce that name. I think that's going to be very interesting. I think uh, I think that's going to be a fun score to talk about. The guy in Forvo says Franz Waxman. I think that's what you said. Great. Anything else, Andy? Uh, at the end? Oh, uh, like, subscribe, comment, and join us. Right? Yeah, but say it for real and say the things. Okay. If you are enjoying the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Why not? Uh, if you are enjoying the show, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Or join in the discussion uh, on Twitter. And join in. Well, you know, you, people have only so much time, John. <laughs> okay, fine. Choose one. If you like the show and you wish that you were participating in the conversation, go ahead and participate in the conversation by getting in touch with us on Twitter at Scoresettlers. That sounds great. All right, so now here's where I simply say, without any further ado... Does silence count as a do? <laughs> I was trying to think of some, some ado, to be honest. It seems like a very settling the score thing to point out, that in this case, silence is a do. <laughs> All right, great. Let's listen to some more film music, Andy. Uh, let's do it. 